Welcome, thank you for standing by. At this time, all participants are on a listen-only mode until the question and answer session of today's conference. At that time to ask a question, please press star followed by number one on your phone, unmute your phone and record your name, company name when prompted. This call is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. May I introduce your speaker for today, Michael Oko, please go ahead. Great, thank you very much. Uh, greetings uh, to all the media around the world joining the call today. I'm Michael Oko, the Global Communications Director here at the World Resources Institute. Uh, WRI is a global research organization focused at issues at the center of the economy, environment, and human well-being. Today, we are here to discuss the upcoming COP being held in Madrid, Spain. Uh, we will be joined by WRI's president and CEO, Andrew Steer, as well as some of our top climate experts, we will discuss issues around the COP, both giving context and setting expectations, as well as providing some details on what to expect in terms of the negotiations. Um, I'm going to turn quickly to our speakers, and then we will have, uh, after their comments, we'll have time for questions uh, with you all and discussion, and uh, also to note that this call is being recorded, and we can share a recording of it following the call. So as I mentioned, we are being joined today by uh, Andrew Steer, who is the President and CEO of WRI. We'll then hear from Yamid Dagnet, who is a senior associate at WRI and is very involved in the negotiations. And we'll hear from David Waskow, who is the director of our international climate team. Um, during the Q&A session, we'll also be joined by Joe Thwaites, who is one of our finance experts here at WRI, and by Kelly Levin, who is another one of our top climate experts and in particular has been tracking issues around Article 6. Um, we also have other experts who will be on the ground and happy to put you in touch with them and a follow-up if you want to uh, have any follow-up questions. So without further ado, I'd like to turn the call over to WRI's President and CEO, Andrew Steer. Andrew. Thank you, Michael. Uh, welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us. We are deeply grateful that uh, you share your time with us like this. Um, just to, so I'll, I'll give just a few words of context. Um, we are in a different place today from where we were even 12 months ago. Um, politics are difficult. Um, but there are a number of factors that are potentially going to drive uh, solutions. First, the, um, the uh, impact of climate change is even more evident today. We know more science that we knew, than we knew a year ago. We've internalized the 1.5 degree report. We've read the report from the IPCC on the ocean and the cryosphere and on land. Uh, we've had some of the worst extreme weather events in history. Um, 18 of the 19 hottest years in history have happened in the first 18 years of this century. So first, just the urgency has grown. Second, um, people power. We've never had 7 million people, almost all young, marching before. We've never had uh, a 17-year-old sitting uh, with the Secretary General of the United Nations and, in, and addressing all the nations of the earth. Um, with a great moral clarity. And the question will be, is that power going to grow in the coming weeks and months? Just look at the uh, democratic uh, 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 debate last night, how prominent climate change was. So the issue is rising on the agenda, both in the United States um, and globally. Third, um, technology continues to uh, create opportunities that we were not aware of before. Prices of renewables are lower than ever. 
But I think an important development in the last year has been a recognition that the so-called hard-to-abate sectors are actually not quite as hard as we thought. Some very important analysis and practice has occurred already in some of the important industries such as cement and steel and so on. And just this week, a, a company, Helogen, um, announced that it could now get up to 100, 1,000 degrees Celsius from concentrated solar power, which opens doors to addressing some of the most difficult, hard-to-abate sectors. Fourth, um, business leadership uh, is, uh, was one of the bright spots of the climate uh, summit. We now have nearly 700 major international corporations signed up to the so-called science-based targets, which is a very serious commitment to decarbonize uh, over the coming decades and a very transparent process. You'll remember at the Climate Summit, 87 of those companies announced that they would not just do below 2 degrees, but they would do 1.5 degrees. Um, and we, together with the other organizers of the science-based targets, approach are now requiring all new certification to aim at 1.5 degrees. And fifth, the financial sector is still not where it needs to be, but we are seeing some progress. Um, the replenishment of the Green Climate Fund uh, at 9.7 billion, and we hope that will increase, is, uh, is better than many people thought. This week, the European Investment Bank, which is uh, the biggest of the um, multilateral development banks announced that it would not only not finance any fossil fuels at all after 2021, but would also allocate 50% of its financing uh, to uh, green investments. Um, the CPI, which uh, annually uh, presents data on, inter on finance for climate, um, uh, came out with numbers just very recently, 546 billion over the last, over in 2018. It's down a little from 612 billion, but nonetheless, it's still, you know, a number that is uh, pretty uh, credible. More important than all of this, we're starting to see traction um, on the issue of uh, disclosure for climate-related risks. Insurance companies will be making important announcements. And banks are still not in the right place, even although they are announcing big amounts of money for climate. Um, they're still investing a lot more in fossil fuels than they are in renewables. And just this week um, in London, uh, ending yesterday, uh, the Sherpas of a very important group of uh, finance ministers, a coalition of 51 finance ministers for climate change, um, prepared themselves for uh, COP25, and they have some pretty interesting ideas. So these are all, um, none of them are perfect, quite frankly. I mean, none of them are getting us to where we need to get to, but they are forces, we believe, that give a little more encouragement than one might get from what one hears from some of the major countries. Obviously, uh, the climate summit was disappointing in terms of commitments from the G20, um, and, uh, and obviously we all know that the United States and Brazil and a few other countries are actively unhelpful at the moment. China continues um, to want to lead. It continues to invest heavily in, the, in renewable energy, but with the growth rate falling in China, it actually does make it a little more complicated for them uh, to make the kinds of commitments. And uh, one of the great sort of uncertainties is, will they in the coming months come forward with a more ambitious um, NDC. 
India is um, is uh, making some uh, very important moves right now. Uh, as you know, Prime Minister Modi announced 450 um, gigawatts of renewable energy. When he came to power, you know, maybe they had a total of 10 gigawatts. Um, and by 2030, 450, uh, he gets the idea of disruptive system-wide change. Um, so we are hoping that there would be uh, some leadership uh, from India, and of course we're hoping the same for Europe. Um, unfortunately, with a change in leadership in Europe and uh, some of the complexities of politics in the eastern part of the region, um, the climate summit was not the place in which Europe could make the announcements it needs to. Um, but certainly the new president of the European Commission um, has stated her very strong intention uh, that they will come up with a more ambitious um, NDC and that they will, as a bloc, commit to net zero. So let me stop there and pass it over to Yamid. Thank you. Uh, there are three main areas in the negotiation likely to come ahead of our attention at COP25, and they all uh, relate to ambition. The first is making progress on unfinished rules, which, if designed right, can help enhance ambition. The second is making progress on the issue of loss and damage, which is exacerbated by the lack of ambition. And the third is making progress in securing the right level of support in order to drive ambition. On the first one, outstanding rules, you remember the landmark 300 pages of rules adopted in Katowice last year after three intense negotiations. Well, two issues could not be resolved, the use of carbon markets under Article 6 and the length of implementing period for countries' nationally determined contributions. This is also referred as common time frame. Among the two, carbon markets will be the most popular, sensitive, and prioritized issue at COP25 because more than half of all NDCs include markets as one of the means to achieve countries' emissions reductions goals. We know that these markets approach have the potential to drive cheaper emissions reductions while generating financing from protecting forests, transitioning to renewable energy, and bolstering resilience to climate impacts. But these rules must be designed right. Without proper oversight and robustness, these mechanisms could severely undercut climate action by creating loopholes, letting countries off the hook from making meaningful emission cuts, resulting in double counting and jeopardizing environmental integrity. So while at COP25 we want to see significant progress on the rules of Article 6, the top priority, however, should not be to finalize them at all costs, but rather to answer they are right. On the common time frame, you may remember that the initial NDC submitted in 2015 covered different time frames. Some run until 2025 and others through 2030. As we face climate emergency, we want tight deadlines that promote countries to ratchet up their efforts more frequently. So in Madrid, countries should agree to a common time frame that requires all countries to execute their NDCs during a five-year implementing period, which align with the five-year ambition cycle set in Paris, and which will provide greater predictability going forward and complement the long-term strategies that, also, that are also expected. Having that benchmark, however, could still allow uh, countries uh, willing to indicate plans requiring a longer time frame. On loss and damage, well, loss and damage is another very sensitive issue that negotiators will rather live in Madrid. 
And this includes situations where climate shocks, whether sudden, like hurricanes, or irreversibly slow, like sea level rise, go beyond what societies can adapt to and threaten entire nations, cultures, and economies. At COP25, countries will review the performance of the mechanism created to deal with this issue, the Warsaw International Mechanisms on Loss and Damage, and consider how to strengthen its mandate. One of the functions was to, um, to support uh, the mobilization and access to finance and technologies for addressing loss and damage, and this is one of the issues that will be the most sensitive. And this, lead, this led me, lead me to the last but not least support side. You heard Andrew mentioning um, the progress made on the replenishment of the GCF, the Green Climate Fund. Yes, with 28 countries, we have now confirmed about 9.7 billion pledges. While it's a positive step, this is not enough. We should, uh, more countries should contribute, and some developed countries are expected to double their contributions, and COP25 gives an opportunity to announce additional financial commitments uh, while also checking progress on the 100 billion goal. Uh, in addition, and finally, there's going to be some attention on capacity building. It's <coughs> a major determinant for the transformation we want to see. Uh, there's going to be uh, a, a, almost a week dedicated to this issue to enable countries to also meet more ambitious and stringent commitments. And with that, I will pass it to David. Great. Uh, thank you very much, um, and thanks to all for um, being on the call today. Uh, in many ways, uh, COP25 really should be seen as part of a broader arc uh, over the course of leading over the course of the next year uh, and to the conclusion of 2020. 2020 uh, under the Paris Agreement is a critical moment. It's the time when countries are expected to come forward uh, with enhanced uh, commitments under the Paris Agreement, what are um, referred to as their NDCs, and it's also the time when countries uh, have been invited uh, by the Paris outcome uh, to provide long-term strategies for what they will do by mid-century, by 2050. And so next year really is a critical test um, for what countries are prepared to do to uh, put us uh, as a whole, put the world on a trajectory to reach the goals of the Paris Agreement. And COP25 sits in that trajectory leading out to the end of 2020 and especially um, toward 20, uh, COP26. Uh, and so this COP in, in, in many respects can be seen as a marker on that path, a stepping stone toward what has to happen next year. And I think that um, what the President uh, of the COP, Chile, and the host of the COP, now Spain, have done together shows the kind of cooperative spirit, the kind of collaboration, uh, the kind of determination that we really need to see heading into that year. Uh, and, and perhaps we can uh, call this a can-do COP. This is a can-do moment uh, at this COP. Uh, for countries to rally around the multilateral project of the Paris Agreement and to show that we can, in fact, achieve those ambitious commitments that we need next year. Uh, a few words on where we stand on that question of ambition and strengthening commitments. Uh, we saw a number of countries come forward at the UN Climate Action Summit in New York in September uh, to talk about what they are going to do. Uh, 
the WRI has a, has a tracker online, 2020 NDC tracker, uh, that shows where countries stand on their intent to strengthen commitments under Paris. Uh, right now, there are 68 countries that have indicated they plan to enhance uh, those commitments, those NDCs, by 2020. Um, many of them, though, are, are small and medium countries. I think what they are saying, those small and medium countries, uh, is that they recognize the uh, impacts that we face from climate change already and what will happen down the line, uh, which will be even more severe. And so they're ready to take action. We've seen many of those vulnerable countries come forward, 33 small island states, around 20 African countries. Um, but those countries added up uh, total only 8% of global emissions. There are some larger emitters in, in that mix, South Africa and Nigeria, for example. Uh, and there are also some countries, um, some larger countries, that have said they'll update their uh, NDCs by next year. Um, that could only be uh, providing more information and numbers. Um, that does include the European Union and its member states, South Korea and, and New Zealand. But again, we are missing... Uh, most of the major emitters in terms of their intent to come forward with something stronger next year. One of the positive signs we also saw at the summit was a number of countries, 66 countries, who said they want to get on the road to net zero emissions by 2050. That's a new common benchmark in many ways that we're seeing. And the question ahead is, can we have more countries do that, but also can we put in place the targets in the nearer term for 2030 that will get us on that path? COP25, uh, COP25 can highlight this momentum and um, show that countries, in fact, are ready to make these commitments, can re-emphasize that importance, and it can also adopt conclusions about the timeline for next year for putting forward uh, these national commitments. Uh, major emitters will need to step up next year. We have opportunities next year for that to happen. There's an EU-China summit in September. Uh, that will be a critical point for the European Union and China to delineate what their action will be. And then, of course, we have COP26 uh, toward the end of the year as well in the UK that will be a key moment for that. Lastly, let me again touch on finance. You've heard from um, my colleagues about that. Um, but in, in the context of the COP, this is also an opportunity. The GCF replenishment lays the groundwork um, uh, landmark decisions like that of the European Investment Bank does as well. There will be a first-of-its-kind gathering of finance ministers at this COP uh, on the second Monday on December uh, 9th, and that is a moment where finance ministers can come forward with their plans to really put the investment that we need uh, behind climate action so that it can be as ambitious as possible. And then lastly, let me um, note that um, I think we've seen a swirl of questions around the links between climate action and social issues over the course of the last year. Um, this COP is also a moment to begin a much more robust conversation about those questions and how really we can take action that links climate action and the need for social equity around the world. Thanks. Great. Thank you, David, Yamid, and Andrew for that great overview um, covering a lot of ground. Um, so we will now uh, invite questions from those on the line, and um, I'll ask the operator to come on the line and let us know how they can get into the queue. Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question, please press star followed by number one on your phone, unmute your phone and record your name and company name when prompted. 
Your name is required to introduce your question. To cancel your request, you may press star followed by number two. One moment for our incoming questions. Great. And while we're waiting, just a reminder that um, we'll have uh, folks, uh, many folks in the room who will be at the COP. Uh, we have Joe Thwaites here from our finance team and Kelly Levin also on the line. Um, and you can also reach out to me. I'll be going to the COP. Um, I uh, call Gerhold, who many of you know, uh, who leads our climate communications, will be there for the full two weeks. You can also call up with Nancy and Lauren, uh, who work in my office, uh, in our office here in D.C., but you can touch with many of our experts who will be there. Uh, operator, do you have questions? Yes, we do have questions in queue. The first question comes from Jeffrey Lean from Freelance. Your line is now open. Hi. Hi, Andrew. Very encouraged by all the um, helpful signs you were given. Can I ask, however, about the coal surge just reported from China, which does seem to be a bit discouraging. Um, apparently, there's been a rapid increase recently, particularly in the provinces. Is that something you've picked up, and um, how significant is it? Well, good to hear your voice, Jeff. Um, yes, it's something that we are very uh, well aware of, um, and it does illustrate um, when your economy slows a little and you have industries that are in a challenging position, um, how tempting it is to uh, go back to uh, old ways. Um, so yes, we're, we're watching that. Um, as far as we can tell, uh, the commitment to renewable energy is still strong. Um, the economics is still pointing in the right direction. Uh, for a shift to renewables, but we're very well aware of that. We also are working uh, quite intensively on the Belt and Road uh, program. Um, we brought out a report um, uh, a few months ago that showed that uh, China's investment um, in the Belt and Road on energy uh, is still heavily fossil fuel based, um, and we were pleased that the government has now established a coalition for the greening of the Belt and Road uh, to make sure that a uh, there is a sort of centralized uh, information database and that uh, they are um, uh, able to think through what kinds of mechanisms they might have in order to uh, steer the, um, uh, the uh, investments in a, in a more sustainable way. Great. <clears throat> Thanks for the question. Let's uh, take the next question, operator. Yes, our next question comes from Marlo Hood from AFP. Your line is now open. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for organizing this. Um, I've got a, a two-part question on loss and damage. Um, I wondered if someone could just sort of remind us of what uh, has been agreed uh, upon uh, to date uh, and what are sort of the, the, the big rifts uh, in the discussion on loss and damage, uh, just to give us some context. Um, and then the second part of my question um, concerns um, the size of, of loss and damage. There's some credible uh, NGO studies um, coming out that suggest that we could be looking at $150 billion a year uh, within five years, by 2025, of loss and damage, and uh, the, a number that continues to grow uh, over the years. Um, and, um, you know, first thing that that is striking about that is that it's even bigger than the uh, 100 billion a year figure for adaptation, which was uh, still remains contested in some way. So, my, I guess my question there is: is 
how concerned are you about the loss and damage um, sort of uh, uh, becoming uh, a, a serious, uh, uh, more than a serious point of contention, sort of threatening the outcome of... of, of okay, great. Thanks, Marlo. Um, we're going to ask Yamid to answer this, and I would note that we have additional experts who work on adaptation, so if she, obviously Yamid is very well aware of all the negotiations, but we can also follow up with you uh, afterwards if we don't quite get to all the details of, of loss and damage, but Yamid, please. Uh, uh. Thank you very much, Marlo. Um, so, we are concerned about this issue because we believe that there's going to be a lot of political attention. Um, this is one that developing countries um, are taking really seriously and are going to push forward, especially the most vulnerable ones. Um, so, in terms of the issues, so since the Paris – actually, the, the, the Warsaw Mechanism was created in 2013. And uh, there are three functions that they were supposed to be doing. Um, one, in enhancing uh, the knowledge uh, by creating a number of knowledge products, um, also um, trying to increase the synergies and cooperation with other uh, institutions and organizations, um, for example, the International Migration Organization and also uh, the Sendai uh, Framework. Uh, on disaster risk management, and and the third was on finance, um, and where there has been the least progress was on finance, which is why there's going to be a lot of political attention. Um, and, and and I think the question on this particular issue is going to to be how to take you know the issue of financing more seriously, uh, financing an approach that is going beyond uh, um, uh, insurance. Uh, there's been a lot of progress in looking into insurance schemes, but uh, con uh, there's push to try to look really beyond that. And whether there's going to be a, a task force created, dedicated to this, who, who, which organization will be part of this task force, and who they will report to. They're going to report to the COP, meaning all countries under the convention, or are they going to report only to um, under the Paris Agreement? Um, another another issue is uh, since uh, the Paris Agreement uh, task force on displacement has been also um, uh, created, and there has been uh, recommendations uh, provided and an action plan produced. And the question is how they're going to take this forward. So there's a number of issues. I will stop there. These are going to be the main. These are the main one. And my colleague um, Joe or David uh, may uh, comment on on the package. I would just say on the size of loss and damage that it's very much there's an, there's areas um, that are very close to uh, climate risk um, that are also relevant for adaptations. And there hasn't been a lot of there needs a lot of uh, work to properly account, um, you know, for what is uh, considered as adaptation versus what is considered as uh, loss and damage. Um, so I will leave yes, David. Um, thanks. Yeah, just a quick comment. Uh, as you know, loss and damage has been very contentious in the past, and, and I think it um, remains a quite salient issue for, for many countries um, and many communities around the world that are facing the serious impacts of climate change, often ones that they are not already or in the future going to be able to adapt to. And 
That includes issues in low-lying coastal areas. It includes loss of ecosystems. The question going forward really is going to be how to concretely and in a, in a constructive way address these questions. And um, although obviously it's, it's central to um, how the negotiations may play out this year, it's also quite important to address these questions in a way that addresses what the needs of, of those communities in those countries actually are on the ground. Great. Great. Thanks. Uh, thank you for the question, Marlon. Thanks for the answers. Let's go to our next question, please. Thank you. Our next question comes from Justin Catanoso from Monga Bay. Your line is now open. Hey, thanks for taking my question, and I really appreciate this opportunity. Uh, in in Monga Bay, we're really concerned uh, about forests, particularly tropical forests. And I'm curious if the panel sees an opportunity at this COP within Article 6 for there to be provisions in carbon trading to incentivize uh, conservation of forests. We see deforestation rising uh, every day, particularly in Brazil. Um, and and you know, these natural climate solutions keep getting discussed. Will there, is there a poss the possibility of there being incentives within Article 6 to protect forests and grow them back? Right. So we, we were not going to get through this call without a question on Article 6. So thank you, Justin. Uh, I'm going to turn it to Yamid to give a brief answer, and then we'll ask Kelly Levin, who's also on the line, to, to weigh in if she'd like. Yes, definitely. I think there's scope for Article 6 to, to create uh, some incentives, uh, you know, on, on, on the protection of forests, but there's also so much risk to create the loopholes that we know. And um, I will I will leave you know Kelly to give you know more details, but I think this is uh, very contentious. And the details of how Article Six are going to uh, inform that specific, specific uh, um, sector uh, may be uh, further detailed later because the conversation has been pretty broad at the moment. So just you know to contextualize the co the conversation, what is being negotiated is broader. There are not a specific decisions yet on, you know, the, the sectoral implications. But Kelly, please, uh, ship in. Sure, thanks. Yeah, you mean right. I, I think there hasn't been a specific um, sector, sector conversation on this. Um, and perhaps for um, the very reason that there, there are so many higher level contentious issues, for example, around double counting and additionality and broader issues around environmental integrity, um, that uh, the, there hasn't been the specificity around um, the role of forests, for example. But that said, um, it is popping up in subtle ways. So um, if you follow the text closely, um, there will be um, a distinction among, among some parties just wanting to specify the words emission reductions, for example, um, as, a, as opposed to including enhanced sinks, um, which signal um, either an appetite or a lack of appetite to include forests in the scope of what Article 6 would be. I think there are some parties that really support the inclusion of forests in Article 6. Um, there are others um, that see the Red Plus um, mechanism right now as a um, stronger, having a stronger um, uh, possibility in terms of finance and do not want to have um, Red Plus subject uh, to Article 6. Um, so some divergence um, of views for sure, 
Um, I, I do anticipate that this conversation will um, pop up sometime um, during uh, the negotiations, um, but as you had also said, um, there are just some, some much broader fundamental issues um, in terms of incentivizing ambition and the role of Article 6 for finance for adaptation and double counting, um, that uh, that kind of level of specificity um, the parties are not focusing on right now. Great. Thanks a lot. Uh, thanks for the question, Justin. I want to uh, keep moving to the next question. Obviously, we're happy to follow up with you. And again, I'm sure we'll see you in, uh, in Madrid. We can talk more about Next question, please. Thank you. Our next question co comes from Karim from Energy Daily. Your line is now open. Thank you for taking my call and for organizing this um, call this morning. Um, I wanted to go back just briefly to the China coal issue uh, and the report that came out this week. As you know, um, uh, the Global Energy Monitor said that China now has uh, enough coal under development that uh, it risks not meeting its Paris goals, and not only China not meeting its Paris goals, but uh, indeed the world not keeping temperatures uh, below two degrees, as temperature rise. So my question for you is, do you anticipate this becoming an issue or a topic at, in Madrid? Uh, David, do you want to jump in on this question about China? And yeah, so, so two things on that. Um, first of all, I think it's important to note that um, this um, potential uh, building boom in the coal sector comes at a time when the utilization rate of existing coal power has actually been down in China. And so um, I think a key question for China right now is, in fact, even with new power plants that may come online, um, what is the direction they want to take? And as Andrew noted earlier, there's tremendous opportunity there on the renewables front. And um, certainly they do have a pathway um, if they choose to um, that that would shift away from coal and and to clean energy sources. Uh, and we've done some analysis looking at what uh, can be done in a strengthened uh, Chinese NDC next year. Um, when you look at some of the existing scenarios, the available scenarios, clear that an earlier peaking date is possible, strengthen uh, carbon intensity targets, even a, a, an overall target for their emissions um, is something that could be done. Um, and then also on non-CO2 gases, that's something that currently isn't touched on in the top line targets of, their, uh, of China's current NDC. And um, we have analysis and would be happy to share it about what could be done on that front. And it's noteworthy that non-CO2 emissions across methane, HFCs, et cetera, in China would actually amount, if you treated them as a country, to the seventh largest emitter in the world. So that's an important uh, area that they, in fact, are moving on and uh, could take further steps on in the NDC. Now, in terms of Madrid in particular and what might be addressed there, um, there will certainly be discussion around the negotiations about questions around what countries will do next year, what their ambition will be, how they strengthen their Paris commitments, and so forth. But it won't be at the centerpiece of, of the formal negotiations per se. Um, as I said, there will be questions about what are the timelines um, for next year when countries might come forward with their NDCs. Could there be a COP decision setting forth some timelines? Um, but that won't be particular to any specific country. Um, it will, however, for China and many others, um, 
set the scene and um, lay the ground for, for what will come next year. Yes, and there will be a Super Wednesday, um, the, the, the last Wednesday of the COP, where there's going to be a high-level segment uh, event with uh, ministers, and I think the Chilean presidency uh, would set the tone in unpacking exactly how they're going to take, you know, their NDCs forward. And this is where, you know, some countries like, including China, would be uh, under scrutiny a little bit and 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 pressured to try to also unveil how they're going to overcome some barriers and still, um, you know, support uh, fulfill their, you know, requirements. Great. Andrew, I don't know if you want to ask. Well, your question uh, precisely sort of underlines the importance of having powerful countries um, such as the United States, powerful blocs such as Europe that are able to engage um, in the really big issues. Um, and that's why, you know, Europe's position is going to be so important. I mean, what we, what we desperately need is Europe to fairly quickly come forward with uh, the political uh, capacity to to have the kinds of conversations with China so that we'll achieve what uh, President Obama achieved, you know, six years ago or five years ago. Um, uh, the economics, though, are, are, are now convincing. Um, it was economic analysis undertaken by a range of uh, institutions, including Tsinghua University, including our own New Climate Economy uh, project that was able to demonstrate convincingly that it was in China's own interest to peak by 2030 last time. Um, uh, the evidence now, of course, with declining costs of renewables and so on, is that it makes sense in China's own interest to peak significantly before 2030. But um, this issue you raise is just um, you know, a textbook study of what will be happening in countries today where existing um, vested uh, inertia um, will be um, uh, sticking in the heels in order to prevent sort of the, you know, the energy future of tomorrow. And so um, all the more reason that, that there is a capacity to have, um, to have a high-level discussion. And this is exactly, of course, what the G20 ought to be able to do. But with Saudi Arabia chairing this year, it's unlikely. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you for the question. Um, and let's go. I think we might have one more question. And operator, do you want to remind folks how they get in the queue if there's uh, anybody else who wants to get in? Yes, we still have a one question in queue. The next question comes from Mayor Ersan from VE. Your line is now open. Uh, hi, this is Amara Irfan at Vox. Uh, just sort of a meta question here. Uh, given how long the negotiations went in the last round in Poland, I'm wondering what's the likelihood that uh, this uh, meeting will end on time, or, or what do you think is the thing that's going to be pushing things into uh, extra hours at the end? Wow. Uh, you're, pretty... you're, you're planning your airline travel back home, obviously. <laughs> uh, pretty much, yeah. So, uh, yeah. And we are being recorded, so um, I'll, I'll just leave it there. No no betting, no betting allowed, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> has, we'll take it full without funds, right? Anybody well, wants to comment on the nature of this, uh, maybe going back to the can-do spirit of the negotiation, and can't get home in time, but uh, you meet. Well, I, I think that we, we, we know that uh, the Chilean presidency wanted to see some results on Article 6, and because of the fundamental uh, diversions, there's a lot of diversions on critical issues, um, uh, we believe that it's definitely going to uh, to go till the final hours. Um, however, um, you know, 
as mentioned before, it cannot, there, there shouldn't be a deal at all costs. And, you know, the ultimate deadline to get, you know, the full package of the rules is COP26. Um, so, of course, you know, there's going to be a lot of diplomatic efforts in the corridors to try to see, to get as much progress as possible. Um, but, yes, because there's this uh, uh, final deadline of COP26, I'm not anticipating um, a Durban uh, COP <laughs> uh, where we, uh, we stand uh, for, you know, two additional days. So, so yes, I think we, this is a practical, supposed to be a practical can-do COP as well. Um, let's see. Great. Thank you for the question. Operator, do we want to see if there's any more questions? Yeah, we show no questions in queue at this time, but for participants, if you would like to ask a question, you may press star followed by number one on your phone, mute your phone and record your name and company name when prompted. Thank you. Great. Again, uh, thank you for participating in the call. Uh, I'm uh, happy to follow up with anyone if you do have follow-up questions, and we will have a recording of the call available uh, afterwards. We can circulate that around as well. It looks like we do have one taker for uh, – it's a, it's a repeat, but <laughs> do you, operator, do you want to take uh, – Yeah, the next question questions? From Marlowe Hood from AFB, your line is now open. Hi. Um, uh, my last question is very long-winded. This one will be very short. Uh, can can Paris survive a second Trump term of office? Oh, that is a, that's a <laughs> so uh, maybe I'll turn it to Andrew to reflect on that, and maybe also if you want to give closing thoughts about anything on on uh, the future uh, U.S. engagement. Yes, Paris can survive a second Trump term, but whether we can is a different question. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, uh, we, we are a non-political organization, so we don't advocate for any policy, any, any uh, political party. We do advocate for policies, though. Um, the current Trump administration is uh, massively negative, but on the positive side, it has generated a degree of enthusiasm, as you know um, very well, Marlowe, at the subnational level that is unprecedented. If you look at all of the commitments that have been made by states and cities and corporations and other institutions, they are now uh, the equivalent um, uh, of 70% of, of the GDP of this country is now committed fully. And they're committed actually much more energetically than they would have been had Mr. Trump not been in the, in the White House. And we've been working with uh, uh, RMI and other institutions together with Bloomberg and others on the new analysis of, the, um, of the America's pledge, which will be launched in Madrid, I think, on the 9th of December. I think we may even be able to uh, give an embargoed copy of that. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, but but essentially, it will it will show the extent to which um, all of these efforts actually are going to add up to something close to the uh, to the to the Obama commitment. Um, having said that, um, uh, it would be just massively helpful if uh, if there were economy wide. Uh, measures. Um, there is a very interesting group that we're part of at the moment called the CEO Climate Dialogue. It has 20 CEOs of major corporations um, and four NGO CEOs. And our job is to work with senators to try and get economy-wide um, 
a carbon, uh, car yes, a carbon pricing introduced. And just last week, you know, we went with the largest cement uh, producer in the world, the largest um, chemical company in the world at the CEO level to talk to, um, to senators. Um, there's a new, as you know, a new caucus, a bipartisan caucus um, that now has, I guess, uh, 10 members um, that, uh, or maybe it's still eight, that uh, is interested in thinking through an approach. Each year that passes, the Republican Party is obviously realizing that um, it is going to be very damaging to itself as, as well as very damaging to the environment and to the U.S. economy if they continue to take the policies they do now. There is even a school of thought that uh, Mr. Trump, uh, if he did have a second term, um, could pivot uh, away from his base and towards his legacy. Um, and who knows? Um, there's even a possibility there, but uh, it's not a view that we are particularly optimistic about. So uh, it's really, really important that we work with other nations. It makes Europe and China and India just all the more important, we believe. So just finally, I mean, for me, if you wanted a few sure. closing thoughts, I mean, the next 12 months are going to be absolutely the most important 12 months since the equivalent period five years ago. Um, and so this COP, um, whilst people might look at it and say, well, you know, what's there really there? It's important for a whole range of issues, as, as Yamid and David were saying, to sort of, it's the can-do, it's the platform from which you launch actually a pretty aggressive year uh, of ambition. So there's lots of uh, I's to be dotted, T's to be crossed, um, but also there's an issue of tone. There's an issue of are, will people leave Madrid in a spirit with which actually we could make this work next year. And at the moment, we have 8% of the carbon emissions in the world that are committed to a more ambitious NDC. If we were in that position a year from now, then, you know, then we have to say the, 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 the Paris deal is in very, very deep uh, trouble. But um, that's what we're fighting for, and uh, we're very grateful to all of you for reporting so inspiringly on the subject. But I think David wants a word. <clears throat> I, just two thoughts. One is I think that um, it's important to note the robustness that the Paris Agreement has shown. Um, we've seen over the past several years a series of statements by G7 and G20 countries, with the exception of the United States, about their support, ongoing support for um, the Paris regime. Uh, we've seen even recently the uh, four countries, the four major emitters in the basic Alliance, which is Brazil, uh, South Africa, India, and um, China, saying that they support a multilateral process um, going forward, that they strongly support that multilateral process. Uh, we've seen Russia join the agreement recently. Now, all that said, as Andrew said, uh, we also need to see uh, those countries take strong action on their emissions. Um, being uh, committed to Paris means that one, in fact, is committed to achieving the goals of the Paris Agreement and taking those strong measures. And I think the question is not so much um, a question of, is Paris viable? Uh, how do we think about that regime? But what is it that those countries are doing? I think that's where the spotlight needs to be shown over the coming years. Great. Uh, thank you, David uh, Yamid, Kelly, Joe, and Andrew, uh, thank you to the media for joining the call. Look forward to seeing you all in Madrid. Uh, this will conclude today's call. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes today's conference. Thank you all for your participation. You may now disconnect.